What's up, everyone? This is episode number 93 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast. My Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Well, I hope everyone is doing well today. I hope you're having a great week. I've got a great conversation lined up for you today with a collector named Vamsey, a.k.a. Aussie.Luca77 on Instagram. And I've never had him on the show before, but I did read some messages that I exchanged with him on episode 69 when I talked about the situation with PSA and Alta Fox. Well, we've chatted a couple times in the past week, which took a bit of maneuvering because he's in Australia. We had a time difference that we had to work through. But he was awesome about it and super flexible, and we ended up having a conversation that I think you guys will really enjoy. But before we get there, got a couple things that I want to cover real quick. Uh, First off, it's hard to believe that the NBA season is about to start up again, but here we are. And this episode is scheduled to release on December 10th. We've got a handful of games that are set to kick off preseason on Friday the 11th. I know the first Pacers game is Saturday night. Preseason can be tricky sometimes. Not all games are televised. I've had League Pass for over 15 years now. I know at times that they've even broadcast feeds from the Arena Jumbotron, but I'm excited. I'm going to take that game however I can get it, and I'll definitely enjoy that. Um, And yes, it feels like the last season just ended because it did. And in fact, some of you that are newer to the hobby never experienced a real card collecting offseason. And I sincerely hope that you get one at some point. Um, now, the alternative is to collect a player like Jeff Foster, where every day is the off season. But speaking of cards and markets and seasons, and I don't think anything will top the PSA news from last week, but we had some more interesting news in the hobby in the last several days. And this one actually made Yahoo Sports. Um, Kevin Durant. Matthew Delavadova and some other businessmen have invested a total of $1.3 million into the card marketplace known as StarStock. And the Yahoo Sports article quotes the StarStock co-founder and CEO Scott Greenberg, who said, StarStock aims to create a frictionless market for fans to trade athletes. Um, Now, before I talk about them, I want to let you know I am not here to tell you to join the site or not. I don't have any affiliation with them. Please go do your own research. Um, I have a few friends who have an alternative name for the website. I won't say it on here because it's not family friendly. But um, the gist of it is that they send all of their junk prism and shiny stuff there that they don't think is worth sending to eBay or ComC. And now personally, the last time I looked at the site, the interface was really clean. I know now they've got some blasters and some wax on there. But I really wasn't all that impressed with the offering of cards. From what I can see, it's all uh, rookie stuff and newer stuff too. So I sorted all basketball listings. I narrowed it down to the years 2000 to 2009. There were roughly 1,000 cards for sale total from an entire decade in the modern era. And I even searched for a guy like Kevin Durant, who, as I mentioned, just invested in this thing. Pretty big name, right? 22 cards of him for sale on the entire site. Um, And we'll actually talk about this in our conversation later today. It's hard to create a marketplace if you don't have people that are listing cards and people that are wanting to buy 
cards because there's not a lot on there. So, um, like I said, though, it looks like there's just a lot of new stuff. I guess that makes sense if the idea is to trade athletes instead of trading cards. Um, at the same time, I'm wondering if this investment isn't looking to up the caliber of cards loaded there and maybe even take things to another level. So either way, it's interesting to see a guy like KD buy in. We haven't really seen him um, talk about cards or invested in this whole card thing. So maybe there's something there that might appeal to you. Maybe it's worth keeping an eye on in the near future. After all, I like buying cards and this is another place where I can do that. All right, before I move on to my conversation with Vamsey, I want to take a moment to tell you a little bit about Fanatics. As you guys know, there are costs that go into running a podcast, so I signed up for the Fanatics affiliate program. And we're getting close to Christmas. I know a lot of you might be looking for gift ideas. I tweeted out a link this week, but every NBA team officially showcased their new City Edition gear this week. And I will tell you, and this is not just because this is a Fanatics promo. I absolutely love the new Pacers gear. It uses the royal blue from the 70s, the Flojo uniforms from the mid-90s, and the pinstripes from the late 90s and early 2000s. So for somebody like me that's really um, into the history of a franchise, that's huge when they can nail it on a uniform that looks great and combines those things. Anyway, some of that gear is up at Fanatics. I'll definitely be picking some of it up. Um, Maybe that's something you would consider as well. Whatever sports gear you're looking for, there's a good chance that Fanatics has it. If you'd like to help support the show in this way, go to www.tinyurl.com slash WMPod. Click the Fanatics logo at the top. Uh, Shop as planned, and the show gets a small commission in the process. It's a win-win once again, that's www.tinyurl.com slash WMPod. This is Slick Leonard. You're listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. Boom, baby! Okay, so last week when I was gathering information about the PSA sale, I knew there was one guy that I really wanted to talk to about this whole thing. And as I mentioned in my intro today, we messaged back and forth when AltaFox was trying to stage their little um, takeover, for lack of a better word. And before I could even reach out to him again about this potential PSA sale, he reached out to me. Now, we're in different parts of the world right now. It took a little bit of maneuvering to make this happen. I'm winding down for the evening. He's probably on his first cup of coffee right now. Um, Vamsey, I just want to start off by thanking you for taking time out of your schedule to come on the show. No problem at all. Thanks for having me, having me. I appreciate it. Now, we've got um, a lot to talk about today, but I think I would be doing um, everyone a disservice if we didn't find out more about you first, because I am always interested in hearing from different collectors. In fact, I think um, you know that's something that makes this hobby so great is that even if our stories are similar, all of our stories are still unique at the same time. So um, that's really what I want to know first. And I, I think people want, would want to know that as well. What's your hobby story? How did you get uh, where you're at today? Yeah, sure. I mean, truth be told, my story is probably not that unique. In fact, I, I'd probably kind of describe myself as like the classic sort of cliche 
um, sort of person that's returned to the hobby after a long time on the on the sidelines. So, again, I'm mid. I'm, well, I'd like to say mid thirties, but truth be told, late thirties. <laughs> you know, I was obsessed with uh, basketball cards back in the early nineties, just like everyone back there was. And um, unlike you know some, I kind of stopped as I entered high school and. And literally 25 years, I didn't really take any notice of it. Literally probably didn't even come across a card in that time. And then about 18 months or so ago, there was a documentary that was aired here in Australia um, called Cardboard Addicts. Um, and it was literally just a, a documentary about some um, you know, obsessed um, card collectors here in Australia. And I watched that and it's kind of hard to describe what kind of came over me. Just the juices got running. Um, I watched it, sort of all these memories from back in primary school came back and literally the next day I went to my local card store, um, not many of them around these days, but the the, the one that's here in my city and I bought a, a box of Aussie Rules, um, what we call AFL, Aussie Rules um, cards and I just spent the afternoon ripping packs and like that was so fun. I, I can't quite explain it. Now, these are not cards that are valuable or anything like that. It just, again, brought back that sense of nostalgia and fun, just opening cards and just looking at these cards. And and at the time, and, I, and all through that time, even though I've said I haven't been collecting cards in that time, I still have followed the NBA very, very closely. I'm a big fan of the NBA. I love the NBA. Um, and so at the time, I was like, look, why don't I look at some NBA stuff? And I looked at them and I was like, wow, okay they're kind of expensive and perhaps I'll just stick to Aussie rule cards from now. Um, but you know what I've got, like many of us in the hobby, I've got sort of an obsessive personality and I kind of got bored of the Aussie rule stuff pretty quickly. And a few months later started consuming content in the NBA card space. So, you know, your podcast, a couple of other podcasts, finding forums. Um, and then I just went in heads first, to be frank with you, into the deep end and I guess my problem when I first started was that I was just so scattered. I was buying some Booker stuff, some Aiton stuff, some Lucas stuff, some Jordan stuff. Um, heck, I even bought some baseball stuff and I don't even follow the baseball, right? And so like, um, you know, some Juan Soto and these sorts of things and pure dumb luck. It just so happens that a lot of these things have obviously gone up in price. And unfortunately, I don't have a lot, a lot of it left. But nevertheless, I just went in and I was, it was almost kind of overwhelming just being discounted and not being very targeted in my approach. And after taking some advice from, from some other people in the hobby, they were like, look, just kind of settle down a little bit, get a bit more focused, try and find someone that you like to collect. Um, and as it turned out, I sort of settled on Luca. And so um, I started yeah, you know, trying to find some Lucas stuff. And at the time I had no idea about, you know, buying from some of these eBay auction houses and how the idea of shilling and all that. I remember buying, you know, I set some all time highs um, for some of the cards at the time. And um, the one I remember was a Luca PSA 10 optic hollow. And um, I remember, you know, someone on blowout was like, can you believe this person just set this all time high? And I think it was around a thousand dollars. I can't remember at the time. And I was like, Hey, that's me. And I just got lambasted on blowout that I had just, you know, bought this card off, you know, one of the auction houses. I can't remember which, but, um, and obviously everything since then has exploded in price. And again, that was just dumb luck, but unfortunately I don't have everything left still, but um, yeah, that's kind of how I've gotten back into it. And since then, again, I've, I've slowed down a little bit and tried to focus a little bit more on, on Luka Doncic and, um, and that sort of thing. But I tell you what, it's kind of hard to get some of his stuff now, that's for sure. Right. Well, a couple immediate thoughts that come to my mind. The first one is you got in at a, a great time where you could actually still rip some things 
Um, and it, you know, it, it was relative, at least you could get them, right? It, it, you could find some stuff. Um, you, you landed on a great player. Um, so, you know, that seemed to work out. So, you know, all in all, it's not all that bad. Um, no, no, it's worked out well, don't get me wrong. Um, as I said, uh, it, it, pure luck, I, I think, just certainly from a timing perspective. Um, and a little bit, I mean, I, I I mean, obviously, I liked Luka Doncic, and I, you know, I think he's going to be a great player. I, I, I you know, I, I didn't, and this was at the start of his second season. And, and if you recall, he exploded into that season, and everyone was like, "Oh, wow!" You know, mm-hmm. um, and, and you know, and things have just continued to escalate from there, from a price perspective. You know, for a few different reasons, not just his play, but uh, for a couple of other reasons as well. So, yeah. Well, it's it's a little sobering to hear somebody say. I bought all these Luca cards and it was dumb luck um, because on the flip side of that, and I'm not calling anyone out, but on the flip side of that, we do see a lot of victory laps and you know what, everyone, please enjoy your gains. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but also know that um, there's a lot of luck involved in this and there are a lot of, and we'll talk about some of these later. I'm sure there are a lot of factors that go into this, but it's just, it is very sobering to hear that. And I, I think that also speaks to the kind of person that you are and, and, and people will discover more about you as we go along. Um, so excellent. So you collect Luca. Um, you mentioned that you had a hobby store in your, in a nearby city. Um, but I, I haven't had an international guest on here before. So I got to ask you, uh, and I know cards are huge in Australia, but what does collecting in Australia look like? Look, it's really similar to you guys, truth be told, just on a, on a much smaller scale. Um, the hobby here is thriving. It's growing, super healthy. Um, we probably don't have the market for the really high-end stuff that you guys do. So, um, you know, if we do have a, a, you know, what one might call a high-end card, it's probably difficult to move it to someone within Australia. Not impossible, but again, we don't have as many sort of whatever you want to call them, whales here in Australia that... Um, uh, able or willing to sort of purchase cards at that level. We're affected by things like shipping times, shipping costs. Um, sometimes people understandably uh, are, you know, have reservations about shipping overseas. Um, it's not too bad typically, but these things can affect us. And certainly the exchange rate. The exchange rate can really hurt us as well. Like mm-hmm. to, to give you an example, the, um, the Aussie dollar uh, against uh, the greenback was about 55 cents back in March, April in that range. And now it's 70 cents. So um, that's a 30% difference. So a, a price, a card price, for instance, um, if I've got this the right way around, was um, 30% more expensive for us um, back then than it was now. Yeah. So um, we typically price the cards, uh, you know, because we use comps and all that like you guys do, which, and we typically price them in the, the US dollar. And so if the currency fluctuates, that, that can affect us as well. But all in all, it's, we've got a great community here. Um, we've got our own sort of forums and our own Facebook groups, um, these sorts of things. So I, I really enjoy getting in amongst those. I much prefer buying from um, people within these groups um, rather than eBay if I can. And not just fees related reasons. I just think it's cool getting to know the person that either you're buying from or selling from and, um, you know, knowing what they collect. And then, you know, if you, if you ever want to move something else, you can go back to them. The trust is already there. I just think that's such a, a better way, my view, um, of mm-hmm. sort of, um, you know, moving cards rather than anonymously. Sometimes you have to, of course. Um, but yeah, like I said, really healthy. Is there, I, I remember from the early 2000s, I think it was called 
was it OZ Card Trader? Yeah, that, good one. Is that the yeah. forum? Is that still around? Exactly. Exactly. So I, I'm sorry. Card forum. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, OzCard uh, people, if I didn't know if you were still around or not, but um, that's awesome. I, I do want to do a, a message board episode pretty soon. I know I've mentioned that before, but I'm yep. kind of piecing that history together. So I, I'll have to add you guys in. Um, <laughs> all right. So we could talk about, um, you know, Luca and all the things that you collect and kind of what collecting looks like. But out of all of our conversations, it, you seem to be really interested in grading, which is great for today. Um, I guess that might be difficult for you from Australia because you mentioned shipping. Um, you know, explain kind of that dynamic to me. And then what is it about grading that really caught your attention? Well, I guess when I was growing up, to be frank, and, and granted, I was you know young, but I was completely oblivious to this idea of grading. Like, as you're probably the same, we all had our cards in either these penny sleeves or in binders, and you knew grading existed. And in the back of my mind, I knew like you'd see a card in a PSA slab, for instance, and yeah, I mean, it wouldn't you wouldn't be like, what's that? But it wasn't this thing where it's like I got a card and I have to get it graded. And somewhere along the line grading has become part of sort of the epicenter of the hobby and I don't and I think part of that is prices of course and I get that part of it is I think when you have an explosion in card numbers or populations what's another way of differentiating them and part mm -hmm. of that is grading um, but again I was just kind of interested in how is it that grading again has become almost you know required like you know right. <laughs> and and then the second thing was the whole process of our, of grading I found to be super archaic and really from what I could tell nothing seemed to have changed in 30 odd years probably more and I mean I mean what are we talking that the biggest innovation that PSA has done I mean they put a QR code on their lap you know I mean congratulations you know flying you know reusable rockets to space and Google <laughs> doing developing you know self-driving cars and gene editing technology and you know, in, in our hobby, we put a QR code on a slab. I mean, it's it, it's kind of strange to me. And a part of that, I think, is just the fact that they operate in at least a duopoly and some might argue actually a monopoly and there's been no reason to innovate. But again, just coming back and seeing the lack of innovation in the grading process um, really surprised me. Just the, the unusual, um, what I would call an unusual pricing model um, in terms of you pay more for the higher price of the or value of the card, and I found that a bit odd. Just the the just the lack of customer service, the turnaround times, the um, the lack of consistency, um, and and all these things kind of fit in. In terms of how we actually grade cards from here, I mean, certainly we can submit cards just you know like you guys do. It just takes a lot longer. We have a guy here in Australia you may have heard of called Lane Pierce. Mm -hmm. So he's the guy that runs 130 Point as well. And so he's an, um, an authorized PSA submitter here from Australia. So um, I submit, I just send cards to him and he sends them bulk to, um, to PSA. And I asked him the other day, actually, and, and he probably does, and these are rough figures, of course, but he probably does you know, 50% of the PSA submissions from all, from, for all of Australia. And he runs a, mm. a fantastic sort of well-organized, clean operation. And um, it makes it much easier for us. Yeah. And so... Um, that's how I, I think certainly I submit cards when I do and um, a lot of Aussies uh, submit to him as well but but yeah I guess it was kind of that the whole thing of you know it, it was kind of old-fashioned in terms of how we actually submit cards and the process and the turnaround times etc and despite all that I was just kind of really 
interested and surprised that despite all these shortcomings, PSA was still phenomenally popular. Yeah. So, right. yeah, it, it uh, and, and you mentioned the innovations. It's like they, they sent us a 10 second clip of a robot arm that wasn't mm. even doing anything. Yeah. And it was like, that'll hold them over. And well, guess what? <laughs> we're still sending cards in. So, uh, you know, exactly. maybe they were right. So but let's, let's uh, transition more into PSA now. And I think most of the people that listen to this show keep fairly close tabs on the hobby, but I want to construct a rough timeline of all things PSA from the past year. And then we can discuss the sale itself, what we think Nat Turner might do with PSA and how we think this will affect the industry going forward. So I'll try not to talk too much here, but I, I do want to just kind of hit some of the events real quick. Um, of course, in 2019, we had, and you'd already jumped back in the hobby by this point, you, you mentioned the blowout forums. Well, that was kind of the epicenter of all of these trim cards being exposed. Um, so we had that in 2019. In the spring of 2020, there was a class action suit filed against uh, PSA, among others, PWCC, Probstein. Um, I talked about that in episode 51. I, you know, I think they kind of got out of that. The it wasn't really well put together, in my opinion. Um, they they bit off more than they can chew. In March, all the coronavirus stuff started. The big grading companies closed for a short while, then they opened back up again. Um, in May, Collectors Universe had their quarter three earnings call. Joe Orlando, a good friend, uh, mentioned that they had a backlog of over a million cards. There was no shortage of business for them. Um, and I remember a lot of cards, a lot of people were actually, when they heard about the backlog, instead of saying, well, I'm going to wait to send into them, they said, let me send in some more stuff really quick, just in case they get shut down again. Um, that way, you know, they can get working on it. So um, they shut down. BGS was in a similar situation. SGC at this point was begging people for cards. This was the uh, pre-check the facts era. And um, in response to this, there were pricing adjustments. People weren't happy. They learned to live with it. In June, we got some unexpected news that a hedge fund called Alta Fox purchased 5% of Collector's Universe. They sent a letter to shareholders calling for change. Um, I talked about this in episode nine, 69, but the letter more or less said, your shareholders are inactive, your company refuses to get with the times, and your board is complacent. And, and you know, honestly, they weren't wrong. Um, and part of their process involved nominating new board members, one of which was Nat Turner. And we'll come back to, to both Nat and Alta Fox in a little bit. Um, in August, we got the email that uh, where, you know, from PSA, where they didn't mention Alta Fox, but um, in my opinion, it was a direct response to that. I think that's where we got our robot arm video. That's where they announced that they had a new uh, vice president of customer experience. Um, which, um, interestingly enough, we haven't really heard anything from him. We've heard more from Nat Turner the day of the sale than we've heard from the new uh, president of customer experience. Figure that one out. Um, and then, uh, let's see, I mentioned the robot arm. And uh, since then, I think we've had one more price increase. Haven't heard much of anything from Alta Fox. And that leads us to this past week where the proposed sale went down on November 30th. Um, Nat Turner's group made a $700 million offer, which has already been approved by the board of directors and is expected to close in the first quarter of 2021. Um, a lot could happen in that first quarter. 
In fact, no sooner had this thing come out than a, a global investor rights law firm, which I didn't know anything about these guys, but they announced that they were investigating whether the sale of Collector's Universe for $75.25 per share in cash is fair to shareholders. Um, now, I, I specialize more in cardboard. This is not my thing. But from what I understand, this is pretty common for a sale of this caliber. Can you shed some more light on this? Do you know about this? Yeah, sure. I mean, so first things first, I'll just, I'll, perhaps I'll just let it be known. I, I've never owned any um, Collector's Universe stock. I, I don't own any now. And as I said, I've never owned any. But I guess in answer to your question, my understanding is that when a takeover bid occurs, it's not unusual uh, for law firms to sort of feel out shareholders, to get an idea whether they are upset or not, and whether there may be grounds for a lawsuit against the board. Um, my understanding is that these actually very rarely actually proceed or go ahead, and certainly a very, very rarely one. So I think what you're referring to is probably nothing more than um, some law firms sniffing around to see whether they potentially have a case that they can jump on. So I think that's probably a non-event. I think the reason why there may be some disgruntled shareholders is that, look, it's pretty unusual that a company um, is willing to sell, um, to sell the company or sell their stock um, at essentially the same trading price um, as what it was trading the previous day. So, mm -hmm. um, so for instance, and these are very rough figures, uh, but uh, CLCT or Collectors Universe was trading at around $75 a share on the Friday. And on the Monday, they agreed... Uh, for a group to buy the company at $75 a share. Now, again, pretty unusual, especially when you take into account that Collector's Universe was growing like gangbusters. It was, it's phenomenal. Now, typically you would say, um, you know, there's a premium place. If you want to come and just take the whole company, cool. You're going to have to compensate the shareholders because the shareholders that currently own the, uh, own the stock or those that perhaps um, bought it very recently at $75 a share, they're not, holding it so it can go to $77 a share. They're holding it as an investment because they think it's going to grow. So you're going to have to prize those um, shares away from shareholders. And typically, in order to do that, you have to pay a premium on what the recent trading price was. Yeah. And, and, so, and not only that, I mean, they've just been promised by Alta Fox that this company is doing really well, despite being run in an inefficient way. So they, they've already got that, I think, in the back of their minds as well. Certainly. And, and look, we should make it clear, this was not, um, you know, this is not Alta Fox is doing, this is the board um, that approved the, the, the sale at, at a particular price. And it should be mentioned that I believe, and again, I could have this wrong, but Alta Fox, uh, during their activism, managed to uh, get at least one person on the board, and I think it may actually be two. And certainly when the board announced their approval of this bid at $75 a share, it, they did not state it was a unanimous decision. So it's entirely poss possible that the Alta Fox representative or the person they had put on the board voted against it. So it, it, that's entirely possible that that could have occurred. But mm. I, I guess, again, just the, the point is, is that you ask anyone that's followed this company closely from a financial perspective, the upside in this share pr price over the, over the next six to eight quarters was enormous. And so... Uh, the, certainly the shareholders that I've talked to, they feel robbed at, at this offer. Mm -hmm. So um, now, again, it's pretty rare that a, a, 
a lawsuit or some sort of class action against the board like this would ever succeed because there are lots of little loopholes that they can use and they would look at the historic share price and that's how they landed at this price by the way they said oh but look at our average share price for the past three months 75 dollars therefore must be a good price well it's like what difference does the previous share price make? Mm -hmm. why, why are you using that? You should be looking at what growth is ahead and using that as a sort of a barometer of what's fair. Um, but look, it is what it is and, and, and chances are it's going to go ahead and, um, and we'll see what happens when, when the new group take it over. I heard somebody suggest that this could, this could in fact just be a starting point um, even though they approve the sale. Have you heard anything similar to that? Well, again, my understanding is that once the board approves it, then it goes to the shareholders to vote. And, okay. um, and so if, if, if a significant number, and I don't know what the percentage is, but if a significant um, percentage vote no, then it doesn't go ahead. But um, again, more often than not, it, it probably will. Um, it probably does go ahead. And I suspect this will as well. And so in terms of your point about this being a starting point, certainly if the board rejected the offer and said, no, we're not, this is opportunistic and we're not selling to you for that price. That was the point at which to, um, to negotiate. The board, you must keep in mind, they're, they're the ones that need to be acting in shareholders' interests. So they're the ones that should be negotiating on behalf of shareholders, really. Um, and so one of the criticisms from Alta Fox's research letter into CLCT you know, six, seven months ago now um, stated that, look, the board just doesn't own enough stock. And so they don't have enough skin in the game. So if that's if that's still the case, then you could argue what difference to what difference is it to them if <laughs> the, the the price of the sale like they don't own enough of the stock to make it materially different from from their point of view. So um, yeah, so look, it sounds like it's probably going to go ahead, and, and that's that. <laughs> so uh, before we leave all to Fox, let's talk about them real quick because they do, we've talked about shareholders, we talked about them. Well, they own five percent, um, so. We haven't really heard about anything that they've done in this potential deal or if they have any role or, you know, I, I feel like they certainly influenced some change at PSA, whether anyone's going to say it or not. I mean, they definitely put the heat on at one point. Have you heard anything more about them? Um, or in fact, have you been able to reach out to them? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I must say, so uh, there's a guy called uh, Connor Haley. So he's mm -hmm. the one that essentially runs Alta Fox and a very, very astute investor, really astute. And he's someone that I actually followed prior to all this. And that's how I actually came across this whole uh, Collective Universe thing. And so when he first published his research note, as I said, I, I think it was about uh, six, seven months ago now, I reached out to him and I said, hey, you know, I, I'm, I'm interested in the card sort of collecting scene. Um, I'm interested in this grading um, thing. I'm interested in, you know, your investing style. If you ever want to have a chat, let me know. And to his credit, immediately responded and was like, yep, we're, we're, trying, to, um, we're trying to get a feel for how the, the hobby feels about Collector's Universe and what can be improved and um, what you don't like and all of that. And we spoke oh, at least a couple of times and, and he was very receptive and very interested in um, sort of the reservations that well, I had. And, and I put a couple of threads up on Blowout at the time as well, asking others like, okay, what do you think PSA could improve with? And so I did that purely so they could get some feedback, right? From not just myself, but from the, the hobby as a whole. And um, you know, they took all of that on board. And 
I give Connor a lot of credit for one, from an investment point of view, identifying the opportunity, two, highlighting the fact that the board had been running this company extremely poorly um, and had left a lot of value on the table and, and were not um, realizing the, you know, the, the, the power that they had really um, from, from maximizing shareholder value but then also enacting change and you know, taking an activist role. And truth be told, when you do that, things can get ugly. And, and granted, I'm, I'm here all the way in Australia, but I never got the sense that certainly from the outside looking in that it got ugly. And he ended up um, enacting some change, getting some you know, fresh people on the board. Um, they, and again, you, you mentioned this earlier, and I, I don't think it's a coincidence that you know, soon after that all happened, you, you started to see um, increase in in hiring and increasing in the number of graders and you know they, they've tried to improve things like turnaround time etc it's difficult because the the hobby has gone through a boom over that exact same period of time and so they're getting huge influxes of cards coming in but um, again I, I give Alter Fox and, and Connor a lot of credit for enacting a lot of that change and try, and essentially you know getting um, collector's universe to pull their socks up. And I think there was a lot more work to be done that as well, I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, I, I don't think uh, we're gonna necessarily um, see that happen, not from a public company anyway, it's now gonna be on on Nat and his group to, to take things uh, forward. But I guess the other thing, you know, what would have been a fair price for this, for this stock, I, I guess is something that's interesting. And so there's a guy that reached out to me again about six, seven months ago on Twitter and we spoke and he's an investor. And so he knew nothing about the card, the hobby um, at that stage, he knew nothing about Collector's Universe, but since then has gone again, deep into this company and into the, the hobby in terms of from an investment standpoint, you'd find very few people in the world that don't work for Collector's Universe that would have a better understanding of this business. Now, he said to me, this was the single best investment opportunity he's ever come across. And Connor said the same thing in his one of his previous research letters where he was like, I've just come across an opportunity that is the best opportunity I've come across as an investor, right? So I asked him this very question of like, okay, well, what would have been a fair price? And his view was that in terms of a takeover bid, it should have been at least 100 to $125 a share at least. Because typically you see a 20 to 30% premium on, on, a, um, on a takeover bid. And he felt that given the upside that was um, ahead in terms of um, from a company perspective or from an investment perspective, he didn't think it was unreasonable to think that the share price of Collector's Universe would have been around $200 a share 18 to 24 months from now. Now, he's not saying it would have definitely been that, but that was the upside. So you can imagine when he's now forced to sell his stock at $75 a share, he's not happy. <laughs> right. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's a pretty significant difference there. So let's talk about, you know, maybe it will get, well, it's private now, like you said. Um, so let's talk about though where they are going, whether they're private or public. Uh, we've got Nat Turner involved and, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of people probably are familiar with his collection on Instagram, maybe not so much his career, uh, which, you know, in, in other circles, it would be the other way around, but we know about his collection. So um, we need to, you know, in order for us to get maybe an idea of what he might do with this company, um, let's see kind of what he's done in the past. You know, that's that might be a good blueprint. So I'm going to read a quick snippet from a website called The Real Deal. 
Um, and it said, um, just, just so we can know a little bit more about him, it says Turner, who grew up in Texas, co-founded advertising technology company Invite Media in 2007. The company was later acquired by Google for $81 million. Um, in 2012, he co-founded Flatiron Health, which uses technology to organize cancer patients' data for research purposes after his cousin was diagnosed with leukemia. In 2018, he sold the company for $1.9 billion dollars. So uh, notice uh, there are two things that he's dealt a lot with. It's technology, um, well, really three, technology, information, and cataloging. Um, and I, I know, you know, that could be very useful in this industry. And a lot of people expect him to somehow wave a, wave a magic wand over this whole thing and fix it. I don't think that's going to be the case. Um, but knowing what we know about Nat and what you know about Nat, um, what do you think his approach is going to be? And what things do you think he might prioritize first? Yeah, look, so if, I guess firstly, I want to be clear and say, look, it's Nat's job to try and obtain the company for the cheapest price, price possible. Okay, so we've talked about whether the, the, the takeover bid was fair or not, etc. That's not Nat's problem. Um, it's the job of the board to ensure they get the best price for shareholders. And as Nat or anyone else trying to buy a company, you want to try and obtain it for the cheapest price possible. So all power to him. And, mm -hmm. and again, for full disclosure, I don't know Nat. Um, obviously, I know who he is, but I don't have a relationship with him or anything like that. But look, you hit the nail on the head with Nat's history. This is a guy who's, whose career has all been all about innovation. And, and more specifically, he's used sort of big data and innovation to sort of um, you know, to bring about sort of change and, and the, the company, the big company that he sold was involved in, in, in cancer research. So um, I expect him to, to, to bring this mindset to his approach to Collectors Universe or, or PSA. Look, in terms of what I think they'll prioritize first, and again, this is me just guessing, but look, they've got such a huge backlog of cards and the wait times are kind of, you know, they're getting a bit ridiculous to be frank with you. And, and I'm guessing that's the first thing that they're going to try and um, to address first. And it's, it's actually not the grading process itself that takes the most amount of time. The thing that takes the most time for PSA is when people send their cards in, they've got to, you know, unbox them, unpackage them. They've got to handle them carefully. They've got to make sure that the card that you're sending in is actually, well, the, the card that you you say you're sending in is actually the true card, right? And so mm -hmm. that's not an easy process to do. And that takes time, which is why I suspect that when PSA put their timelines on their website, it's from the moment your card is processed, right? Mm -hmm. Because the grading probably doesn't take that long for them to do. And, but it's again, that processing and, and cataloging and, and I, I wonder if that's kind of the first thing they're going to address. And I wonder if that's the thing that they'll introduce technology to try and help with. And we talked about this robot arm. I don't know what, the, you know, that could have been from a Tesla factory for all we know. I don't know. But like, I, I think, you know, the use of um, robotics or the use of image recognition in order to help identify cards. I mean, these things all should be technically possible. It's just whether you're, you're motivated enough to try and explore them and willing to invest enough money back into the company to make it happen. Right. So look, but it's super hard to, to do, you know, for, for a company starting from scratch to, 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 to do this. Yeah. So this is why PSA is just so well suited um, to, to do all this. I mean, a company, again, starting from scratch lacks all this data to, to sort of focus on image recognition. PSA should have all that data as well. It's just a matter of compiling it and, and, and you know, getting some 
yeah, machine learning experts or image recognition experts and, and you, know, you, you, you create the software for it. But I guess what I expect Nat to work out is how can we use this data that we've got access to in order to improve workflow, improve turnaround times, and ultimately also use it to help offer serv other services to collectors. Um, so, I mean, there's no reason why we couldn't have a PSA app where I can just take a photo of a card and immediately, an ungraded card, not just a QR code, and it immediately tells me what the card is and what the pop report is and what the recent sales are like. I mean, PSA could easily do this, but up until, you know, some new services like Card Ladder and these sorts of things came along, I had to go to eBay, click on the sold, you know, items button and maybe I'd get a couple of months of data. And obviously we've talked about Lane Pierce with his 130 point and that, you know, helps as well. But again, I don't see why PSA couldn't offer all these things, uh, all, all these things as well. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I think, yeah, getting the backlog taken care of would, would go a long way. Um, and it's some of these little things, not even that, um, maybe not the most profitable things in the short term, but establishing a foundation for the future and uh, I know we've talked about it before, but even just getting an entry point for people to deal with PSA, and then they can build up to something else. So um, I guess my next question would be, what are some things that you think PSA might look to move into long term? Yeah, I mean, it was only yesterday um, that you know, we read about some news that Kevin Durant and some of the founders of FanJewel invested in Starstock. And I don't know too much about um, Starstock itself, but it seems like they're trying to build a, a PWCC-like vault service and, and also develop their own marketplace. But again, the question I would ask is why PSA couldn't do this? It is mm -hmm. super difficult to create a marketplace from scratch. You have, you have this uh, cold start problem where people only want to list there if there are buyers searching there and buyers will only want to search there if cards are listed. So again, really hard just to start a marketplace from scratch, which is why despite what I would describe as a, quite a horrible experience with eBay, overall, they continue to dominate, don't they? But again, there's no reason why PSA couldn't offer some of these services as well. And the huge advantage they've got is that people are already submitting their cards to PSA for grading, right? So why couldn't they go, look, yes, you can send your card to us, we'll grade it for you. And you know what, we're going to make it cheaper than it used to be. Okay, so we're going to be a super attractive place for people to send their cards for grading, because one, we're not going to try and gouge you on price anymore. But we're also going to improve turnaround times. But then you know what, if you want to store your card with us for various reasons, you're allowed, we can do that. We've, we've now launched that service. And you know, what, if you also decide that you want to sell your card, just sell it through us. And perhaps we'll take a small clip and a uh, you know, with that sale. And so there's some of the, I think certainly in the, in the short term, you know, 12 months or so, or perhaps maybe a little bit longer, I don't know, but some of the additional services that I could see um, PSA offering. And if I was PWCC right now, I'd probably be, you know, a little bit afraid of that actually, because mm -hmm. I think PSA is going to come after their, their business. And um, again, the big advantage that PSA have is people already send their cards there for grading. And so, um, I, again, in the, sh the medium to short term, I think those are some of the things that I can see happening in terms of some of the long term um, things that, that, that could be done. Uh, look, again, just the use of technology being introduced in the grading process itself, not just from a, um, um, an efficiency standpoint, but 
Um, look, I think we're a long way away from a computer doing the whole grading process. I think there are some startups looking into that sort of thing, but I, for one, am flabbergasted by some of the PSA 10s that get handed out with some of these absurd centering issues. And that's something that a computer, I would have thought, could very easily do. And so I think that um, the use of uh, image recognition and the use of software to do to, to assist with grading, I think, will, will happen at some point. And I think it will result in a much more consistent grading process, which I think uh, the hobby would welcome, to be frank with you. Yeah, I think of everything, um, you know, it, it's going to be hard to look at surface flaws and surface wrinkles and that kind of yep. thing. But out of everything, to me, centering is the most, you know, scientific, um, objective uh, element that you have when you're looking at a card. So I, I do think that at some point we could get there. I remember Joe Orlando in his letter um, to customers, he talked about how we're only human and you know, we're arguing balls and strikes and so forth. And he said, you know, you, you wouldn't want robot umpires, blah, blah, blah. Well, actually, yeah, baseball, a lot of people in baseball do right now, um, because if there's a predetermined strike zone, you know, centering, right, you can figure that out. So um, I, I think these companies know, and, and I've talked about this before, but there is a major benefit to having human grading and having those subjective qualities where people have to send their stuff in again and again, um, and they're willing to do so even with a backlog. So um, let's say maybe things get a lot more efficient, whether they do, you know, if, if it's just processing or if they actually do have computers that end up grading stuff, let's say they get a lot more efficient, which I think we are headed in that direction. I'm very, um, you know, I'm not a huge grader myself, but if they get this thing straightened out, I might actually be sending some more stuff in. Um, what kind of ripples do you think a, a well, and this is, you know, total uh, fantasy right now, a well-run, um, efficient grading company, what kind of ripples do you think that would have on the rest of the hobby? Yeah, it's interesting. And, and coming back to this thing of, um, you know, whether we want grading to be perfect or not. I mean, we've got a situation right now where, PSA will hand out a PSA 10 card that's graded and in their slab and people have reservations about whether that's truly a 10. And so you have a secondary company that's popped out, um, <laughs> that's popped up, that is now, um, that's now authenticating that it truly is a 10. I mean, what sort of absurd situation right. is this where- We're grading the graders. Uh, yeah, and it's like, I, I can't believe it. So it's like, look, we don't even trust that a PSA 10 is a PSA 10. So we're going to send a card to a, a third party that can authenticate that for us. And so I don't buy this argument of balls and strikes and subjectivity is an important part of it. No, I think people, I think people want to know that a, a PSA 10 is a flawless card. Um, it is why uh, a BGS black label, you know, commands a, a significant premium, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I do think consistency and accuracy is something that the hobby absolutely will want to, to see. In terms of your uh, answer to your question about the ripple effects, I'm not sure we'll see things fixed like super quickly, um, particularly in terms of the backlog. I think it will take time. Um, so I don't think we're all of a sudden going to have like a thousand PSA 10 Luca Silver prisms all listed on eBay at the same time. But look, certainly if something resembling like that did occur, we're going to see prices get affected. Like if supply, particularly of a, of a, of a popular graded card, um, <laughs> floods the market, you, you would expect prices to go down. 
Um, again, I'm, I'm not sure to what extent we'll, we'll see a flood like that. Um, and it's possible that PSA even choose to artificially, you know, restrict things in terms of how, like, sending cards back, et cetera. That, that's possible. But um, again, I, I guess it's also, you know, worth mentioning um, in terms of these ripple or ongoing effects, like if PSA do improve their, you know, their customer service, they improve their pricing, their efficiency, then what's this going to mean for the other sort of grading companies? So, you know, so certainly some people prefer a, a BGS slab, for instance, but I tell you what, if PSA really pulls their finger out, then this is going to really force the other grading companies to do the same. And if they don't, then, you know, they're going to go out of business, which again, that may leave PSA with a true monopoly. And I'm, I'm not sure that's necessarily a good thing either, but I tell you what, like the days of, you know, BGS and companies like that telling um, their customers that they just have to look at a, a, a slab more carefully so they can determine for themselves whether it's fake or not. I mean, that's completely unacceptable. And so, again, if PSA do bring um, safety measures, um, technology to protect uh, customers into the market and BGS continue to have their slab um, counterfeited um, and, and kind of just shrugging their shoulders and telling their customers just to look more closely, well, they, again, they're just going to go out of business. And so I'm very bullish, again, on um, on particularly Nat. If I'm going to be, you know, again, just to focus on that, um, he's someone that, um, you know, he's obviously been involved in the, the hobby for a long time. He's got this background in innovation and technology, huge collector. I can't think of anyone in the world, to be frank with you, that I would rather have sort of stewarding the ship of PSA and and again, if BGS and some of these other companies are not careful, like PSA is just going to trample all over them and it, and it will be done. So um, I think there's some of the, sort of the potential ongoing sort of ripple effects that could occur throughout the hobby. Yeah, it's a pretty stark contrast. You know, I mentioned Nat's Instagram earlier. He, the, the sale, the proposed sale happened and he's already posting stories like, hey, I promise I'll get back to all of you. Um, yep. And then on the other hand, we've got, Jeremy Murray at Beckett, like you said, telling us to look closely and to buy mm. wisely. It's like, hey, man, your magazine's dead. Yeah. Um, you can't rely on your magazine anymore. Mm. Yes, I know they're still printing copies, but um, prices don't matter by the time the ink dries. And you're trying yeah. to tell us this stuff, and then your slabs are being counterfeited. It's it's mm. a new day. Not only that, you know, we've got this new company in Florida forming which I, I know a lot of people aren't happy with their slabs, but um, they've got, it seems like they've got some good ideas. Now, I don't know if this PSA um, transaction is good for them because I, mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, it, it's probably bad timing for them, but um, it, if I'm Beckett, I'm it's just like you said, you got to change something. PSA is getting better. This new company's forming. Maybe SGC will figure things out. I'm not counting on it. Um, but you know, even if they don't, there's four. We've got four companies now. Um, yeah, and this is the thing. I think, again, we talked about Nat's involvement with, in technology and innovation and these sorts of things, but something else that's generally, generally speaking, you know, quite specific to tech companies is that they're very customer-focused, yeah? And so this new company that you're talking about in Florida, it would have been, it was great for them when PSA and BGS were kind of just doing their same old thing and they could come out and, and innovate and improve their customer service and and perhaps get ahead that way. But I agree with you. It's a problem for them if PSA is now 
under new ownership where they are going to focus on these things, it, it's kind of a problem. And and look, BGS, as I said, they really need to um, to think about how they're going to approach things because the whole idea of a graded slab is that it's a it's it, it's a trust thing. Like if people don't trust that a PSA ten is a PSA ten, or they don't trust that um, you know a, a card in this slab is an authentic card, you're finished. It's, it's mm -hmm. if you don't have the trust of the hobby anymore, you are finished as a grading company. So. I, if I were them, I'd be, um, you know, thinking a lot more about how they approach this problem. Yeah. So um, as we wind this thing down, I, I want to get a general snapshot of your feelings of the overall state of grading. I want to know what it looked like two months ago, and I want to know what it looks like now. And I, I know, you know, we talked some about that. I don't want it to be too much repeat information, but I, I just want to kind of see the contrast here at the end. Yeah, sure. And look, we know that demand for grading services is through the roof, right? We, we know this. Um, and look, Nat and his group, um, it's not just Nat, but him and his group, they're obviously buying this company as a business opportunity. So, you know, that, that's got to be clear. But I'll reiterate what I said before. I'm very, very confident that he will ensure that the hobby is protected. I don't think he's going to come in and just... Um, pillage and increase prices and just, you know, not improve anything else. I think PSA doing well from a business standpoint and the hobby being looked after, they do not need to be mutually exclusive. And I think Nat standing again within the hobby and his passion for the hobby, he will want to ensure that collectors are not treated poorly. Again, I don't know him, but that's the impression I get. And I would be surprised if that's not the case. So um, again, I'm very, I'm very bullish, certainly from a PSA perspective. And I think that if PSA um, improve and introduce new innovations and new um, services and better pricing models, I think that's just going to force the other grading companies to do the same. Otherwise, they'll go out of business. So I think this is a great thing for the hobby. Good. You know what? I'm I'm similar mindset. I agree with you. I, I like where things are going, even though, you know, like I've said, I'm not huge into grading, but um, part of the reasons I've held off was because of some of the things you mentioned, some of the things that might be corrected. So maybe I will get more into grading as a result of this. They might even get more business. So um, Vamsi, I've really enjoyed chatting with you today and we could go on and on. And, and uh, there are a number of topics that we could touch on, but um, I'll have to have you on again. Before I let you go, is there anything else that you'd like to add or, or anything you'd like to plug? Uh, feel free, you know, if you've got your social media handles, feel free to share those with us. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm on Instagram at uh, Aussie.Luca77. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Build the Futures. Um, but yeah, I just want to say thank you for the work you do. I can tell you it was, it was a big help for me when I returned to the hobby and, you know, you, you, you warn you know, um, people, collectors about what to sort of look out for and you, you call out some of the problems that are happening in the hobby and not many people are doing that. So yeah, keep up the good work. All right. Thank you very much. I'll be talking to you soon. Good on you, mate. All right. Well, there you have it. Thanks again to Vamsey for taking some time out of his work day to come on the show and chat all things PSA. For those of you that stuck around until the end of the show today, I've got a little treat for you. Uh, as you guys know, and I think I've mentioned this several times on social media this week, but the unsolicited direct messages from breakers and investment accounts and all sorts of people trying to make money on Instagram, those things are getting out of control. So I'd like to do something about it. And I'll talk about it more in the future, 
but I have partnered up with a breaking duo that's going to help me out. Um, they're on Instagram and they're called the Rip Gods, and that's Gods, G-A-W-D-Z, of course. Um, they advertised a repack box this week, and I want to play that for you real quick. Hot off the presses, God Boxes. Are you tired of pulling the same boring players again and again? Feast your eyes on these new gifts from the gods. God Boxes. Inside, you could find players like Luka Doncic, Zion Williamson, Jeff Foster, LeBron James, Bull Bull, and more. God Boxes. There are no guarantees you will pull any specific players. Okay, so little different, right? Maybe you listen to that and you think, you know what, that's kind of off-brand from Wax Museum and the kind of people that I would normally align myself with. You might be right. Stay tuned. Uh, trust me on this one. And most importantly, give these guys a follow on IG. It's at rip underscore gods, G-A-W-D-Z. Uh, once you're done following them, as always, you can find me on my Instagram. There's never a dull moment on Instagram. Um, you can find me there at Wax Museum Podcast or my Twitter, which is at Wax Museum PC. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. Or shop through my Fanatics link and I'll get a small cut. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast.